Coming up on this episode of The Courage to Change. It was a pretty daunting process initially, and I had a lot of that self-doubt going on that I was unworthy. I would never be able to be a professional because I have a criminal record that clearly says I have a problem with alcohol. Um, (laughs) While it's very colorful and entertaining, it doesn't look like that person should be able to have access to any kind of narcotics or people's lives. (laughs) So, But I really wanted to produce, I wanted to get out of the restaurant industry. I wanted to be of service in another aspect. I wanted better job security. You know, I felt like I was intelligent enough to get through the the education and the testing, uh, all the certifications. And, you know, this was just a massive obstacle that I needed to face. Hello, beautiful people. Welcome to the Courage to Change Your Recovery podcast. My name is Ashley Low Blassingame, and I am your host. Reminder, before we get started, please rate and review our podcast. It means so much to us and it is podcast currency. So please go to wherever you get your podcast. It'll give you the option to give us five stars and to click write a review. If you feel inclined, please do so. We appreciate it very much. Now on with the show. Today, we have Allison. Allison grew up in rural Texas in a fundamentalist Christian family where she always felt like something was missing and she was an outsider looking into a world that she did not belong. In her teens, she was introduced to pasture parties, heavy drinking and drugs, and a community of countercultural thinkers who helped her recognize that her sexuality, politics, and spiritual views were not in alignment with her upbringing. As those views solidified, she traded her family and religion for a polyamorous couple in the pursuit of all things hedonistic. By age 19, Allison was drinking alcoholically and was addicted to heroin. Getaways to jails and psych wards were becoming routine. A string of failed suicide attempts at the age of 22 finally led her to the willingness to seek recovery in Arizona among a motley crew of broken yet beautiful young adults, including yours truly. It was there that she started her journey of recovery and forged friendships that she would continue for a lifetime. Through her AA step work and meetings, she was able to make amends to her family and build a relationship based upon honesty and authenticity. In the early 2000s, she decided to pursue a nursing degree despite the hurdles of a colorful criminal record that strongly suggested she was unqualified, untrustworthy, and unethical. Despite the inner voice that whispered she wasn't capable and with the support of her family, and AA community, she walked through those fears in order to become a nurse. Her experience has allowed her to approach addicted patients with empathy, and even with all the challenges of her high-stress environment, she's been able to remain sober for 18 years. Allison's story is incredible. It really is the story of how you can overcome so many things in sobriety and that you can live in any way that feels right for you. Allison has done so much work. We got sober together. We met when I was 17 and she was 22. And I have watched her through this journey. She is incredibly authentic and you're going to hear her vulnerability in this interview. I hope that you come away with the belief and knowing that you can do anything you want, achieve anything you want if you stay sober one day at a time, whatever that looks like when you get into recovery, because that has been my experience and you will see that is also hers. So without further ado, I give you Allison. Let's do this. 
You're listening to the Courage to Change, a recovery podcast. We are a community of recovering people who have overcome the odds and found the courage to change. Each week, we share stories of recovery from substance abuse, eating disorders, grief and loss, childhood trauma, and other life-changing experiences. Come join us no matter where you are on your recovery journey. Allison, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. This is super fun. Allison and I got sober together almost 20 years ago. And this is definitely going to be a mini trip down memory lane in some spots. But Allison, what is your sobriety date? Uh, My sobriety date is October 13th, 2003. So we're coming up on 20. 19. 19. Oh, yes. We're coming up on 19. Maths, Math. right? Okay. <laughs> Math. You have a really interesting story because you grew up in a very small town in East Texas in a fundamentalist family, which for those of us who know you today is hard to picture. Yeah. What was that like? In some ways, it was really sweet and idyllic, especially when I was a child. You know, we had like this nice little family unit where my dad went off to work and my mom was home when we got off the school bus and it was very supportive and loving, nurturing. We had meals together and all of that worked really well up until I started to develop my own identity and it didn't quite match what my parents were hoping for. <laughs> we went to church routinely and it, you know, uh, fundamentalist beliefs are that the Bible is literal and every word is truth provided from the hand of God. And if you don't really match that style of thinking, it's challenging to, to swallow all that. So as I started to get older, it was more difficult for me to feel like I fit into that community, to fit in with my family. It just felt very judgmental and limited. When you say that fundamentalists believe the Bible is literal, what about the things that don't jive with modern day life? How does that work? Or science. (laughs) It just is. It's just accepted. You just, it's God. So, you know, people who are believers, just, it's very black and white and it's an accepted way of thinking. So there's not a lot of questioning or conflict around it. It's just an accepted belief. So I guess, can you ask questions about it? Like, let's say you're just trying to learn more and you're not, you're not trying to be difficult. Can you ask questions and, and is there room for that at all? I suppose it depends on where you are. I, I asked a lot of questions until I just felt like I wasn't getting very satisfactory answers and didn't really feel like I was being taken seriously or people were going to be truthful with me. And, you know, the things that, that bothered me the most, you know, as I was a teenager were how women were treated within the Bible and within the church. Women were never given any opportunity to be of real service. They were never given leadership roles. They were always given supportive roles to their husbands who were pastors or deacons. I don't even remember seeing women passing the offering plate. They were just primarily sidekicks to the husbands. So I didn't see this as a, you know, an example of something that I wanted in my life. And when I would ask questions about that, you know, I would get responses like, 
you know, the man is the leader of the house and et cetera, et cetera. And, and that also didn't really jive with me. I'm a pretty headstrong, independent woman. And I don't know, I just, I started wanting more than what this life was offering. And the other thing that was really bothersome to me was these really puritanical views about sexuality. If you're gay or queer, you're an abomination. I mean, that's pretty archaic language, but it sounds awful. <laughs> you know, like, and that was, that was hammered home. And there was this weird fixation on sexuality and ensuring that you were a virgin for your husband. And so all of that just felt really bizarre to me. And I didn't understand why people were so fixated on these things. It's interesting that it felt bizarre to you, given that you really grew up surrounded by that as the norm. It wasn't like you grew up in a city and your parents were trying to impose this on you, but everything around you was different. No, everything around you told you the same story, the same belief system. And you just, I guess, intuitively felt that this was not the path for you. Yeah, I guess I'd always felt pretty comfortable with my body and kind of being naked here and there. And like, I just was like, why is this bad? (laughs) You know, why are we shaming these things? You know, Um, and to my parents credit, they're kind of like these, these Jesus hippie types. Like they, they never body shamed me. It was like, you know, open household where we could talk about whatever, but they had very strict views around sex. So I don't know, they kind of like set me up to, to be a free thinker and to be comfortable with myself. But also at the same time, they were like, you know, this one area is pretty rigid. Which turns out to have backfired on their part because they did not. (laughs) The the trajectory was like free thinking, but also not free thinking. And turns out that doesn't really work. Whoopsie daisy. Whoopsie daisy. (laughs) What did that look like as you got into your teenage years? They were just so, I say they, my father made all the rules. My mom would occasionally interject this or that, or we would go to her asking permission to do something and knowing she would probably be more lenient. But then if she, if it, you know, my dad found out about that, he would undermine her and say, actually, you're not going to go. And she would be quiet. You know, you're not going to do this thing on the weekend that you want to do. And, And she would just be quiet. So there was a lot of um, submissiveness, passivity that I was, you know, seeing as an example with my mom. And um, my dad was just, you know, he tried to do everything he could to protect me and my sister from relationships. He didn't want us dating until we were, God, I don't know what the rule was because neither of us paid much attention to it. <laughs> Because it went really well. Yeah. uh, We were like, okay, we just have to lie. (laughs) Right. Right. We were both lying about that. My sister started in earlier than I did. She's a, a year and a half younger than me. And she actually found inappropriate relationships with older boys slash men when she was like maybe 12 or 13 and was also dabbling and drinking and skipping school. And she got into a slew of drugs that I'm like, how did you find those? How does a 12 year old find date rape? (laughs) In small town East Texas, but she was savvy. You know, she was kind of my sidekick and she kind of like led the way. It was like her 
doing these things and initially me seeing her kind of adventuring out on her own into the unknown. And, and I was still kind of cautious, but the more rigid it felt in my parents' home, the more I thought, well, this is just necessary. I have to be dishonest if I want to have any kind of a life. What was the first time using drugs and alcohol like for you? I was 15 when I had my first drink. I was at my boyfriend's house that I wasn't supposed to have. His parents were out for the night and um, they had an extensive liquor closet. So we just started sampling all sorts of things and I immediately liked it. And just like a warm, fuzzy feeling and uninhibited feeling like permission to let go. Like I've been kind of wound up. I think in this, this community where purity and being a good girl is so esteemed. I used these, you know, I, I looked at like how I showed up in school and, and within my family as ways to, to prove that, that I was okay or, or whatever, or to fit in because internally I did not really feel like I fit in, but these were things that I was okay with playing along with. Like those things mattered to me as well. And I'd always had this, if I'm going to do it, I'm going to do it the best I possibly can. And, and it takes on a perfectionistic role. A big part of your story is discovering your identity coming out of this very small world and worldview. What did that look like as you started to explore your sexuality and as your disease picked up? As I started partying more and more, you know, I met people who who were not interested in sticking around this place and who had maybe, you know, ventured as far as Austin <laughs> and um, they were more worldly, <laughs> but they were really the first people that I'd met that even talked about not being religious or not believing in God and, and exposing me to agnostic beliefs and atheist beliefs and, you know, liberal beliefs. And it was so refreshing, you know? I think that's what I was craving more than anything else was just something different. People who weren't afraid to, to be open about their thoughts, even if it was contrary to 98% of the population. I just found it so exciting. And so like with that came, you know, ideas about sexuality and, and basically hedonism, right? I didn't... I didn't <laughs> I didn't I didn't understand all of it at the time but I was I was willing. <laughs> Just period end of sentence. Yeah, bring it on. I'll try it. And so if if something was, you know, like I I had been interested and thought, you know, women were beautiful, but you know, that's kind of taboo, but around these people it was like completely okay and it was like encouraged be who you are fuck the system around you and do what feels good at all costs you know and that went for sexuality that went for drugs however you want to dress a very non-conformist countercultural type of lifestyle and it totally jived with me but i just took it too far <laughs> what did yeah. too far look like well i just i wanted to be open minded to, and that went to a fault. There was no discretion. There was no, but maybe, you know, putting a needle in your arm is a bad idea. And that could lead to all sorts of terrible things. You know, I just, I like, there were just no limits ever. I just thought I'm experimenting. I'm young. There's no problem here. This is a moment in my life. And then I'll, you know, of course, 
get my shit together and, and move on. But my priorities quickly changed from, you know, at this point when I was, when I was using harder drugs was in my early years of college. And so that started to be a priority more than going to class. And my relationships with these people were more of a priority than living a a sanitary lifestyle. (laughs) I I had like a two bedroom apartment that 10 people were living in. And later on, uh, a social worker that was working with me was like, you know, that's a flop house, right? I was like, no, you know, we had sheets. (laughs) Glassware. It's fine. They're my friends. Uh, And how did your relationship with your parents evolve as these substances also became more and more important? There was more drifting apart, for sure. I felt like I couldn't disclose as much to them as I had previously done out of a need to protect them and also protect myself because they were paying for my my college tuition at the time and my apartment. So, you know, I just, I just was living a lie. Basically they thought I was really focused on school and, um, and you know, I was really focused on partying. How did it start to spin out of control? I started to have these moments where within me, I would ask, am I really happy? Am I really enjoying this? Is this what I want to be doing? Because at one point, I was in a polyamorous relationship with a a man and a woman. We were all addicted to heroin and cocaine. My drinking had always been bad, but that was kind of on the back burner while these other drugs moved to the forefront. And I started thinking, I don't know if I want to be in this relationship. And I just had no skills in my life. Wait, hold on. Can we we just pause for a second? So also, it's extremely relatable. You're in this polyamorous relationship. You're shooting heroin and addicted to cocaine. And you're like, I just started to really question whether I wanted to be in the relationship. <laughs> like of all the that are going on, like not, not the heroin or the cocaine or the whatever, but like, are they the people for me? I just love that that was like the highest priority. Truly, you know, this is problematic. I don't know if I want to share this guy with this girl anymore. So, <laughs> right, right. Like um, the other stuff is still working. <laughs> still working. So, I am um, having very few life skills or boundaries or the ability to communicate my needs to another person. I couldn't say, I don't want to do this anymore. They were just like very, I, I just did not have the ability to speak up for myself. And at one point, felt like, and I'll say this too, the man in this relationship was highly manipulative. And had I said things, it would get turned around to, how can you say that? You're the center of all of this. Like she loves you and I love you and you're the focus of this. It was all gaslighting and craziness. So I felt even more like I didn't have a voice anytime I spoke up because it would get turned around on me. And so I became suicidal. I felt like that was the only way out. And that was when I slipped my wrist, that was the first time I, I went into a mental institution. So things started to spin out there. There was hardcore evidence that there was a problem, you know, and, and that was, you know, my parents were informed of that. And so began. <laughs> and did you think that when you went to the, like most people can't imagine going to a mental hospital when you attempted suicide and ended up there, did you think that you belonged with quote unquote, those people? No, it was really very sad. There were a lot of elderly people who had lost their spouses and were 
suicidal because they were at the end of their life or how that's how they saw it. And so it was completely unrelatable to me. I was like, I'm young. I really shouldn't be here. That was a mistake. Well, you know. we ended up in very different institutions. <laughs> my my roommate in, in the psych ward thought I was Celine Dion and then shit under my bed. Um, I had my boyfriend bring in some shrooms and had my very own like girl interrupted experience there. So. <laughs> <laughs> because nothing sounds better. Yeah. Oh my God. Of all the drugs. <laughs> <laughs> Pick the I shared them with another girl there and um, okay. and then they were like okay now you have to go to your rooms and I was like hey it's gonna be okay no matter what you've got this <laughs> oh my god when they say set and setting that's not what they meant I was more pissed off than anything else it was again just another example of these systems around me trying to control me so you know it's illegal for you to cause self-harm and I'm being punished. That's how I saw it. And I was like, this is my goddamn life. If I want to kill myself, I can. Like, who are you to say I can't? Well, they showed me. They were like, Texas Penal Code, here it is. You <laughs> so were like, either be there. successful or come into the psych ward. Those are the options. Yeah. Yeah. It just it just created more resentment overall. And then I was told I had to go see a therapist, which of course I started lying to. Initially, I, I told her I was on heroin and then immediately regretted that decision. <laughs> and so the following week, she said, well, how's it going? And I was like, well, I quit <laughs> all on my own. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, I mean, it was just hilarious that I was paying this woman or my parents were paying this woman. I certainly wasn't. And I'm lying to her and it's a clusterfuck trying to get to her office on time every week because I can't find my keys or my purse or have any sort of organization in my life. It was just all very anxiety provoking. (laughs) What do you consider your bottom as like the thing that brought you to a place where you were understanding that you need help? Oh God. So that didn't come for another year at least. And in that time, there were a few trips to jail I lost the ability to continue higher education because my parents cut me off. They took away my car because they had, you know, they still had the title to that. I just kept losing relationships, losing any sort of privileges that I'd been set up with. My goals kept changing. God, I I had changed majors so many times to benefit whatever my circumstances were. Mm, Any good ones? Or... I was like, I should really study law so that <laughs> so oh, that I'll know how to get myself out of these situations. It's just about having the knowledge to be able to fight these people, you know? Right. So in the end, what, what ended up happening, I'd, I'd gotten a DUI. I was on probation. And the DUI was pretty eye-opening. I thought I could pretty much slide into the radar with my drinking. And that was a big wake-up call. I was so delusional. I mean, I was drinking all day, every day and passing out twice a day and like in a continuous blackout. The DUI was like a reality check that I was going to end up in prison. I could not quit drinking enough to show up for the PO. It was just a matter of time that this was going to all fall apart. I wanted to quit drinking. I saw it as a problem. It was inhibiting every relationship I had. I mean, like, 
pitiful and incomprehensible demoralization is urinating on yourself daily. Just here it is. I'm 21 years old and I pee on myself every single night, which isn't helpful to any sort of sexual or romantic relationship. <laughs> no, no, it's not. I, I highly relate to that. It's not helpful at all, but it was, uh, it was prevalent. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, I was reduced to using adult diapers. I hated myself. Like it was, I would wake up in a, you know, in a puddle of my urine and scream and yell at myself and stomp to the washer, you know, like this was routine. So I'd gotten to this place where, you know, I really didn't have anybody in my life. I'm drinking alone. I can't stand myself. I knew alcohol was at at the crux of it all, but I didn't know how to stop. I went to various homes of people that I knew. My grandmother was an alcoholic. I had a, an ex-boyfriend's mom who was an alcoholic. And so I would stay with these people in hopes of trying to gain some kind of knowledge about how to quit. And also no one else wanted me. I didn't have anywhere else to go. And then they would drive me crazy. And so I would leave because they have their own alcoholic tendencies and chaos and violence and whatnot. And so one night I left and I, I smashed up a car. And it was like, I don't have a vehicle to get to the job that is the means of me buying alcohol and is really the only thing that I'm surviving for now. And so I turned to suicide again. And um, I showed up at my parents' house. I'd been on a a date of sorts with someone who did not want to move me in. (laughs) Which is what I really needed. I needed a man to move me in and take care of me. Uh Uh-huh. And he doesn't, he wasn't really interested in that role, unfortunately. (laughs) He misunderstood the assignment. Yeah. He was dropping me off at my parents' house and they'd moved all my shit to the front yard. And they were like, you don't live here anymore. And it was a real turning point because I was like, God, I don't have any other options. And I went in and I, I took a gun from my, my dad's closet and they didn't know that I'd I had done this, but my sister thought I was being weird. And this is a small period where she was not drinking. And so she called the police and um, they showed up and I just knew it was over. I had a gun in my handbag. I was on probation. There was no, there was no lie getting me out of this. And so I had a very physical, emotional and mental surrender in that moment where I just said, it was a gun in the bag and I'm not going to run away or put this on anyone else. And that was when this big shift happened where I went to jail and for the first time, and I don't know, I probably went to jail three or four times. I wasn't blaming anyone else for my charges. I got myself there. I knew I got myself there. I took responsibility And I started to think, well, maybe physical barriers are what I need to prevent myself from picking up a drink. And that was a big shift, you know, because I'd never looked at at jail as a possible way of improving my situation. And I said a prayer to something. It didn't really matter. It wasn't the, the God I grew up with. I just said, maybe I'm supposed to be here. If that's the case, please keep me away from drugs and alcohol because I'll use. That's my MO. doesn't matter what it is, I'll use it. And um, maybe there's something bigger to all of this. It was a pretty radical moment because I was, I had started detoxing in there. And for me, that was like cold sweats and shakes and nausea. 
sometimes tactile hallucinations, sometimes audio hallucinations, and it was miserable and I could never, ever do it on my own. But I started to feel like maybe I could get through this. Maybe there was something bigger to all of this. Maybe there's a a purpose to all of the shameful chaos that I've been a part of. And I felt like things were going to be okay for once. What did it look like for you to get sober? I was in jail. I went before this judge. My whole family and my mom's like Naranon support group comes with her to my trial. Just all these people that I thought, I don't deserve their support, show up. And my parents are proposing to the judge to put me in a year-long treatment center. And I had previously not been open to that idea. But the idea of incarceration makes one <laughs> open to all sorts of things. I had this idea about rehab and, I, and it matched like a detox center or a hospital setting. Like, here's your paper gown and your cup of pills and shuffle along watching TV and playing Scrabble. And, and I don't know why I was so angry about that as during my drinking, but I was like, I will not go to rehab. <laughs> But suddenly I was like, sign me up for rehab. (laughs) So I got sober in Arizona and that's how I met our lovely host. Yeah, the judge let me come out to Arizona and um, it was a year-long treatment center and I destroyed every idea I had about rehab being so terrible. I'd been so hungry for companionship and I'd been just so fucking lonely the idea of like making friends was just not even on my radar. And I show up to this place and here's all of these, these people who are late teens, early twenties and suffering from addiction. And they listen to good music and they smoke cigarettes all day long. And they're just trying to get sober and and maybe sleep with each other. (laughs) And all of that was just very exciting to me. I was like, I can do rehab. This is great. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my God. I think you got, what month did you get there? In October. You got there in October. Okay. So you had been there for a bit before I got there and I had only been to like not cool places at all. That's putting it nicely. I mean, it's so funny when I look back on it, it was like boarding school. Like it was a blast, right? At the time, I don't think I was as excited about it. But looking back on on the time we had like young people trying to get sober, living in these houses together. I mean, they were fucking out of their gourd to think that they literally put young men and women who were trying to get sober into sleeping quarters together. Like not the same room, but the same house. And they were like, now don't hook up. And it was like, I can't fathom the thinking that they had, like wherever the meeting was where they decided that that was going to work. I just really would have loved to have been a fly on the wall for that logic. But we had so much fun getting sober like that. The intensity of our relationships, the closeness that we have almost 20 years later is unlike anything I've ever experienced anywhere else. Yeah, it's a very unique bond. I think non-alcoholic people have this experience with their like college roommates from what I've gathered. <laughs> but I didn't, I mean, that's that was my rehab experience was, you know, for those that have stuck around and stayed sober, we've maintained these relationships throughout the years. And it's been one of an incredibly deep honesty on a level that, is it's like family 
an identity that you tried back on, interestingly, when you got into treatment was that you were a straight Christian woman. What, how did that, how did that pan out? How did that work out? (laughs) How's that working for you? Yeah. I, I had a lot of guilt coming in. You know, my parents had stuck by me through all sorts of nonsense and, and I really felt like I owed him one. (laughs) So I was like, you know, I'm going to try on like being Christian and straight. And this was initially in the, and on my path here at this treatment center. And it was like, you know, our coins that we get for recovery so, say to thine own self be true. And it, it's so relative, you know, if I'm trying to be somebody I'm not at some point or another, that's going to backfire. I'm going to, I'm going to lash out or yeah, it's just not going to work. At worst, I'm going to drink. There was a, a person at this treatment center who at the time identified as a woman and she saw my Christian identification as a conquest and she was like, oh yeah, let's see, let's see how straight you are. <laughs> and um, she helped me to see that I'm not straight. <laughs> I'm not Christian. And going home to my family after treatment was going to be a terrible plan that I wasn't going to be able to embrace who I was. I was trying to please them and it could risk me drinking. So like in some ways, it was actually a really positive thing for you because your parents did, you know, they had to tell your parents about what happened, which went over like a fart in church, no pun intended. And your parents found out and then the shame and guilt and all that came back around and you had to deal with it in real time, which probably stopped you from going back to Texas after treatment. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Like my plan was to go back home and maybe even live with them while I went back to college and God, I'm sure I would have drank. My dad was sending me Xerox copy of the Bible, like telling me that I'm an abomination you know, I and I was that. so angry. I think I was you sent so him on back. angry. Yeah, yeah. Um, I was so feisty. I was like, it also says under this scripture that it's an abomination for a man to lie with a woman while she's menstruating. So if you fucked my mother on her period, you're an abomination too. <laughs> that was my favorite. I was like, oh, shots fired through the man. <laughs> <laughs> There was some serious Xeroxing of the Bible happening. (laughs) You could just see both of you like furiously sending Bible quotes back and forth. Yeah. I know it wasn't funny at the time. Right. But I couldn't go home. That wasn't going to be a good plan. Stay tuned to hear more in just a moment. Hello, beautiful people. If you've been listening to the show for any amount of time, you've realized a critical feature in every story is finding a community of supportive people. That community takes many shapes and there is no one size fits all approach. That's where lionrock.life comes in. We host 70 plus meetings a week on a topic that likely matters to you. Those community meetings include things like grief, anger, parenting and recovery, meditation, nutrition, navigating relationships and recovery, and so much more. I think you'll really love it. And I want to give you a chance to try it for free for one month. Go to lionrock.life or download the lionrock.life app, sign up and use promo code courage at checkout for one month free. 
all the support group meetings you want for one month free. Check it out. Worst case scenario is you meet some great supportive people and you go on your merry way. Okay, back to the show. You ended up pursuing a degree in healthcare, which was when we were, you know, in our early 20s, you wanted to be an English professor and you decided not to do that and changed directions. And one of the things I hear from a lot of people who get sober and they have a history, which includes jails and institutions, they're like, well, I can't do these things. I can't go to law school. I can't blah, blah, blah. How did you move through that obstacle? It was a pretty daunting process initially. And I had a lot of that self-doubt going on that I was unworthy. I would never be able to be a professional because I have a criminal record that clearly says I have a problem with alcohol. Um, (laughs) While it's very colorful and entertaining, it doesn't look like that person should be able to have access to any kind of narcotics or people's lives. (laughs) So... (laughs) But I really wanted to produce, I wanted to get out of the restaurant industry. I wanted to be of service in another aspect. I wanted better job security. You know, I felt like I was intelligent enough to get through the the education and the testing, uh, all the certifications. And, you know, this was just a massive obstacle that I needed to face. What I ended up doing is writing a letter to the state board and saying, here's my rap sheet. Here's what I'm doing with my life. I've been sober eight or 10 years at that point, somewhere along there. And this is why I want to be a nurse. I, you know, I feel like my experience with drinking can help somebody coming into the hospital who is struggling with alcoholism. And, you know, there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of bias still. There's a lot of stigma against alcoholism and addiction, even in healthcare still. And so I felt like I could, I could really empathize with people in a way that would allow me to connect with them and allow me to treat them in a way that makes them a human, like keeps them, humanizes them. And there wasn't a big process. They were like, okay, (laughs) great. (laughs) And I really thought I was going to have to gather all my people and go to the the courthouse and say, these people support me. They vouch for me. And it it was not a big deal at all. They said, okay. And I had to kind of go through that process each time, kind of just trusting. All right, now I'm applying. Now I'm I'm applying to you know get into the university. Now I'm applying for my license. I'm applying for a job. And this is all going to involve background checks. And each time it was okay. And there was always this little nagging voice like, maybe you're not worthy. Maybe you're just not good enough. But I had really wonderful support in my life to just keep reminding me to trust the process. Trust your higher power hasn't dropped you yet and isn't going to, that you are worthy, that you do have an experience that will uh, make you useful in this capacity. And it's so true. Like my first job was um, in postpartum on a mother baby unit. And I can remember that this nurse that was giving me report, she probably had 20 years on this unit. And we were caring for a woman who was was pregnant and addicted. Sometimes we had women there that hadn't given birth yet. We were seeing them for other reasons. And she said, yeah, the patient keeps complaining that she's uncomfortable, that the mattress is uncomfortable. And you know, it's just not my job to make her comfortable. And I was like, actually it is. Like (laughs) safety, comfort, those are our jobs. (laughs) That's what we do. So yeah, it's been interesting, like how I've been able to to use my past in order to help show up in the field of nursing. 
with regard to your personal life, you typically identify as bisexual. Is that accurate? Am I representing you? Okay. It is. Yes. When you decided to marry a woman and this obviously brought up old feelings in your family and you were going to get married, how did that go over and how did you handle the complexity of those emotions so many years later? So I'll say that from the the time that she and I moved in together, I was honest with my parents and my family about our relationship because I loved her and I wanted, I knew she was going to be a part of my life and I wanted my family to know that. And my mom and dad were disappointed. That's saying it lightly. My grandparents, my mother was like, well, you have to tell your grandparents real snarky like. (laughs) And I called my grandmother and she said, well, we know, baby, you've just been so happy. And we're so happy that you're so happy. And it was really an interesting thing because she very much is in the same community and of this belief system and grew up having us memorize Bible verses. But she ultimately wanted me to be happy and didn't see it as her place to tell me that it was wrong. So she was immediately supportive. And I watched my family over the years try to find a middle ground, which in this fundamentalist society is pretty hard. There's no room for a gray area. But they were like, well, is she coming home with you when you visit? We'd like for her to come home with you. We, you know, you're both always welcome here. Sending her gifts on, on her birthday, very much treating her like a daughter-in-law. And it was really sweet, you know, and, and it made me have a lot of appreciation for my family and see the growth that, that they were doing. Like they were trying to accept despite, you know, being torn between the word of God (laughs) and me possibly burning in hell forever or having a relationship that was authentic with us. So they really made a lot of efforts too. But when we decided to get married, my dad said, well, I won't be coming. And honestly, I thought, thank God. Not that I'm going to have a a part of the ceremony where it says something about whosoever doesn't support this, please speak up because, sorry, people, this isn't about you. (laughs) But he would speak up. He would feel it is his duty to speak up and read read our favorite passage. Oh, boy. Oh, boy. I just thought, well, okay, cool. You know, and my mom showed up and my brother showed up and my sister couldn't because she was in her disease, you know? So it, at the time it was challenging, like my sister not showing up because I'd bought her a ticket and was really hoping she would. And she was financially indebted to my dad and having to make decisions based on that. So she bailed on coming out at the last minute and there was a lot of conflict around that. But, um, we have since talked about it. They tried. Yeah, everybody everybody tried. A lot of time in relationships where one person's in recovery, particularly a long time, they've had to do a ton of work, a ton of therapy, not because they're better than the other person, but because that's what's required in order for those of us to stay sober a long time is to keep growing and to do a lot of work. And sometimes, if not many times, we are really unhappy about the fact that we have to continue to do the in-depth work, but that's just the way it goes for us. And that can make it hard to be with a person who doesn't require that type of in-depth, you know, inventorying (laughs) and just emotional, spiritual work. And it can put a couple 
in two very different places when complexities arise. It can create this situation where suddenly, because complexities have risen, one person has a black belt in this and the other person never had to do that work because it wasn't necessary. It wasn't a fate, a life or death situation. Now they do have to do it and it can cause conflict. It seemed like that was what happened in your marriage was that this complexity arose and you had a different ability to deal because of your history. Yeah. I have always been like since getting sober, I value my health. I value my relationships. I value progressing in my life in all sorts of aspects. And I've always tried to take really good care of myself physically, mentally, emotionally. My partner struggled with doing the same. And for a long time, our relationship worked. But towards the end of the relationship, when faced with the pandemic and you know, I was pursuing what I saw to be more healthy, proactive measures, whereas she was picking up habits that were less desirable to me, you know? And she always struggled with depression and being pretty introverted, was very fearful of, of getting help with in that area. And it was just, it was just pretty challenging. I had a network of friends that I relied on and, and, and utilize when I needed support and she struggled to be vulnerable. And so it did feel like a lot of that was falling on me at times to be that support for her. And as I, I watched her health shift, working as a nurse, seeing patients who were sick with COVID and sick with all these comorbidities coming in, I thought, I don't want to spend my life taking care of someone who isn't taking care of themselves. And that's not my job. And those are really difficult conversations to have with somebody. And we had opened up our marriage, you know, a few months earlier before the, the pandemic hope? started. What was the hope? You know, I think, you know, what, what did you learn? What was the hope there? Well, we were just of the belief that monogamy isn't for everyone. And we'd always been open that we trusted and loved each other, regardless of outside circumstances. And it wasn't, we were open that to find other people attractive, to be honest about oh, so-and-so is attractive. So-and-so is very fuckable. So, you know, we had that kind of relationship that we could talk openly with that. And I really enjoyed that about her, that we could be, that there wasn't a jealousy there talking about these things, you know, that we could be really authentic. We had a really good connection for years. She was my best friend for years. And I felt the relationship, you know, was strong enough to talk about those things. And when she proposed being open in order to create some outside relationships, create some interest, perhaps bring that fire back into our sex life that was challenging to do after 10 years. That sounded like a great idea to me. I thought we had a, the type of relationship that could, could withstand something like that. I learned that opening up a relationship is going to expose the good and the bad about your primary relationship. It's going to show where your strong points are. It's going to show where the weaknesses are. And I was blind to the weaknesses. And it was like, suddenly, all of the things that, that were missing in my relationship, I was seeing when I started dating someone else. And I didn't, I didn't want to settle any longer. I wanted somebody who took good care of themselves. I wanted somebody who was active and, and wanted to go and be outside with me and 
do the things that I enjoyed doing. And we just didn't have that. We had, we just drifted apart with our interest. Yeah. And I think it's also important that you can go through a divorce. You can go through a career change. You can go through, you know, a family relationship struggles, all of that. And you can stay sober. You can stay sober this entire time and not have to, to pick up. And, you know, you left this very, very long relationship and moved in and to a new place and, and started all of that piece of you over again. And I think that the ability to do that that sober is something that sometimes people are like, I don't know if I can deal with the pain. Yeah, definitely. The divorce was the hardest thing I've done in sobriety. Without a doubt, the hardest thing I've done in sobriety, even with the distraction of a new relationship that I was having and how pretty and fun that was at various times, the divorce was without a doubt the hardest thing. I felt I had hurt this person. I took on a lot of responsibility that wasn't mine, my importance in their life that I had damaged them. You know, these are things that were told to me or just beliefs that I created, knowing that I was this person's support in so many ways, and then removing myself from their life and them not wanting anything to do with me. Like, not even, you know, all of our correspondence was by email. We separated all of our possessions with a Google Doc. I mean, it was, it was really, really painful and they had been a best friend for 10 plus years and to just lose them, lose their friends, lose their family, no closure in any of those things, find my own place. It was just a radical amount of change, uh, settling on a, a price for the house, all of these things, every detail, every, every email was like, <laughs> so much grief. And yeah, I stayed sober because I, it wasn't an option to drink and it wasn't an option to behave badly either. You know, it was like, I don't want to cause more harm. And so I was in constant contact with, with my support and they were saying, you can do this, you know, just one day at a time. You can do this. People do this. You can do this. My sponsor is on her third marriage and she had asked me, well, you know, when I said, I think I want to leave, she was like, we absolutely insist on enjoying life. If you're not enjoying life, you should leave. You know, you've worked really hard. I've, I've gone through a lot of step work with you. If you have prayed about this and you feel like you should divorce her, then I fully support you and we'll get through this. Isn't there a place where like we absolutely insist on enjoying life, but obviously there's lots of things about life that aren't enjoyable. So how do you know the difference between just part of, you know, pushing through and what's like, this is just, this isn't going to work for me. I think that's just the piece where my relationship with my higher power comes in. Like I can't make a wrong decision. Ultimately, I'm going to be okay no matter what. Like, I mean, I went back and forth, like, do I leave or do I stay and try to work this out? And when I like listened deep in my core, it was like, I don't want to do therapy with this person to try to make this work. I don't feel like this is working. I don't feel like this is what I want. And it's okay. It's okay for me to leave. It's okay despite like these messages from society that, you know, you married for life. The messages from my upbringing that you married for life. That these are like real messages, despite no matter how evolved I think I am, like they're permeated in there that maybe you just didn't try hard enough. That was a thing that kept coming up. And it was like, no, I just ultimately at my core don't feel like I should be in this any longer. That intuitive knowing that 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 inner voice that has come and can been cultivated over the last 19 years. 
So you you turned 40 this past year and you've you're rebuilding your life in a way that ultimately you insist on enjoying and there's a lot going on in the world. It's important to you that you're out there being a helper. That's part of your purpose on the planet. You have been recently involved in trying to make change in your community. How is that helping you deal with things that feel out of control? There's a theme in this in this interview where I don't like being out of control (laughs) or feeling out of control or feeling like my rights are being stripped away from me or someone else has the ability to make decisions for me. And with the reversal of Roe v. Wade, I feel really afraid and angry. And I feel a need to speak out about that, to protest, to, to talk to people and have uncomfortable conversations to do whatever I can to change hearts and minds, if that's possible, to change legislation, if that's possible, to help women regain their rights, you know, regardless of whatever, you know, you think about it. It's like, this is something that's important to me. And, you know, when I was drinking and using, I didn't know how to appropriately express when I was upset about something and I was passionate about a belief, it was always just hysteria or rage, <laughs> theatrical nonsense. And and now it's like, well, okay, like find the like-minded people, find how to organize, find how, how to stand up for ourselves and for those who maybe have less opportunity to do so. And it helps me to not feel so powerless, you know, like, okay, well, this is something that I can do in a situation that feels so daunting right now. I bring it up because I think it's really important. I think it's a really... what I bring it up because recently we had a conversation. I asked you what some of the goals were with various things that you were doing. And you expressed this to me. And I thought, what a fantastic coping skill and also you know, part of living your authentic self and truth where you feel out of control about something and you channel that into some sort of action that feels representative of how you feel and potentially hopeful and you get community out of it and maybe make some change. And so much of why we drink and use is bottling rage, is bottling feeling controlled, is bottling this feeling of not knowing what to do, feeling like the world is so fucked and we just don't know what to do. And so we drink or feeling like our kids are overwhelming us. So we drink or our job is overwhelming. So we drink and we just, it's like we just drink so that we don't flip out. Yeah. It can feel like the weight of the world is too much and, and I can get lost in all that. So it's, it's also important to kind of have a balance with it and recognize like, like me standing on a corner with the sign is probably not going to change any politics or anything, you know, but it does feel good. It does feel good to connect myself with these other people and to be expressive and to use my voice in a way that's appropriate rather than buy about it, drink about it. Yeah. 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 It's something. It's something. Your story is incredible. And I'm super, super grateful for your time and your friendship, your experience and the amazing things that you've walked through. And I think that, you know, the courage to change, like if anybody really represents that, you know, you do. And I I love you very much. I love you too. And you're not just my friend, you're my therapist that I don't pay. You're my life coach. (laughs) Glad to be your life coach. 
if there's any sort of groundedness to my being, you can take ownership in that. <laughs> Happy I'm lucky to gal to have you as a friend. Thanks for being here and sharing with us. Well, it was really great to have Allison on. How are you feeling after that? I know there were a lot of feelings in there. I was literally just sitting here going, I don't know if it's something in particular that resonated in her story. I felt empathetic connection. I like, I was literally just listening, going like, do I need to run or cry at this point? Like, I, I can't put my finger on it. It could be both. Maybe I'll run and cry at the same time, possibly. That might be good. Definitely. Yeah, <laughs> <I> definitely. <laughs> then my, my sweat will hide my tears. You know what I mean? Exactly. And like, I highly doubt you're the first person. In fact, I think I've done it. I think I, I'm pretty sure that when when my husband and I broke up for five months, I like couldn't get out of bed. And a girlfriend of mine would come over and she would make me, there was this country club and she would make me run. And we started doing like 5Ks because like we were just running and I was smoking, crying, and we were running. And when Dak and I got back together, he's like, what the fuck? Like what, you just are a runner now? I'm like, no, 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 no. <laughs> to be clear. <laughs> To be clear, I was crying, smoking, running, like literally was trying to like function. And so I feel like it's not the first, like you wouldn't, maybe, maybe where you are, you'd stand out, but you know, crying. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think I've done it before. I, I assumed it was like something you couldn't do at the same time, like sleeping and standing up or something like that. One of the things that I've watched Allison with over the course of many years is that the discipline, the schedule, the exercise, the self-care that she has made absolute priority no matter what has really helped to keep her much more sane than the rest of our friend group. We always joke like she's just such a grown up, you know, she really, you know, goes to the meetings, her time is very scheduled. She always makes sure that she's, you know, really great with her money. She's really great, you know, like she's just, she's a really impressive person and very good at taking care of herself, like all around. And I think that has carried her through difficult decisions, whereas my our other friends myself included when stuff was like happening like that you know we're not feeding ourselves we're not you know we're door dashing every meal we haven't exercised in six months like we're complete and utter chaotic messes and making it way worse whatever is going on and she just because of that discipline because of the daily schedule and just her ability to be you know her adulting i think that it has helped her to weather storms that were just really difficult and allow her to have really appropriate feelings for them, but not crash and burn. Like the rest of us are just like crash and burn and then put it all back together. <laughs> you know, she's not a, she, she's just not a crash and burn kind of girl. Amazing, amazing story. And this would be a perfect segue into why people should go to linerock.life and community and join, but I'm not going to go there. So I just wanted you, to point that out. You know what it is, people. And you I'm know, not, you, I'm not even going to say it. And you've been thinking about it. And now's yeah. the time. That's now's all. Now's the time. That's See, all. You, you think that this is an ad. You think this is a convenience. I'm not doing it. I won't do it. That's what I'm telling you. I won't go there because nope. you know. You already know that you it's already, 70 plus meetings a week. It. You don't even need <laughs> us to say that. Exactly. Exactly. That's why I didn't say it. Right. Yeah, totally. <laughs> you already know that there's a group for you pretty much no matter what you're going through. You know that. Yeah. If so you're we won't going say on a run and crying, 
There's a crying running group. <laughs> There's a, we should start the crying running group. Can we start the crying running group? I'm game. Uh, I'm too, you're game? I'm game. How do we do it? I guess everybody holds their phones while they do it. Man, we so that you can really see. look like one of those teenagers who's taking videos of themselves crying. Uh-huh. Have you ever seen this? Uh, no, I can't say I have. What? <laughs> You've never have. seen someone post a video of them crying? Mm-mm. Oh, you're not living. I, I guess tonight I know what I'm doing, but... <laughs> yeah, it, yeah, it's. I think it would be hard to like seek it out. It has to happen to you organically. But when it does, you're like... So walk me through what just happened here. And they're just hoping for a lot of like posts of people being like, hey, yeah, you're okay. I don't mean like they're sharing about something and then like they are yeah. brought to emotion. I mean, right. like just they just crying. were crying and they decided to pick up the phone and film themselves crying. I've literally seen people post that and I'm like, tell me about that. Because <laughs> they're crying beautifully or something. Like I am imitating real life by taking a video of myself crying. We are imitating all of us being in a room and you see that I'm crying because otherwise I'm just crying by myself. No one sees that I'm crying. If I post it, it's like the equivalent of me being in the virtual room in the meta, you observing me crying and going, what's wrong? Kind of a kind of getting some Buddhist sort of, you know, tree falling in the woods type situations at this point, right? Exactly. Okay. Mm-hmm. And let me tell you, if tree falls in the woods and you cry alone, nobody hears that shit. Unless you're running. Unless, <laughs> Unless you're, you're running. running with a phone. <laughs> well, I'm going to make everybody else cry if you haven't. Oh. Hey, Ashley. Yes. Singing in the shower is fun until you get soap in your mouth. Then it's a soap opera. <laughs> oh, my. I, oh, I, oh, that's, that's what I needed. That's, that's it. That's going to start the crying. I didn't just, actually need to cry. The, the catharsis of just <laughs> sicking that on joke. everybody. That's apparently what I needed. Was yeah, just... like all those downloads, the people who get to the end, all of them are going to have to hear it. In fact, if you are listening to this and you go on our Instagram page, Courage to Change underscore podcast, I want you to comment on this joke. I want you to comment your first. I challenge you to go to the, our Instagram page on this post and comment your first thought on that joke. Yep. Pure love. Pure love. That's what it's going to be. Well, we're rooting for you this week, as always. And um, we hope you get what you need. We're still trying to figure out what we need, but we hope you get what you need. We hope that you've got a strong community that's got your back this week. Ashley, what do you got for them? My challenge for you this week, obviously, first, (laughs) go to Instagram and comment on the post about what you thought about that joke. But my other challenge is call that person you've been meaning to call, you've been thinking about, but you haven't talked to in a while. Pick up the phone and call them this week. That's my challenge. This podcast is sponsored by lionrock.life. Lionrock.life is a diverse and supportive recovery community offering weekly over 70 online peer support meetings, useful recovery information, and entertaining content. Whether you're newly sober, have many years in recovery, or you're recovering from something other than drugs and alcohol, we have space for you. Visit www.lionrock.life today and enter promo code COURAGE for one month of unlimited peer support meetings free. Find the joy in recovery at lionrock.life.